We are starting a new series on the Minor Prophets, and obviously you're excited. That's why you're here. I know everybody loves, uh, loves studying the Minor Prophets. Uh, first, we call them Minor Prophets. Why do we call them Minor? Because they are short. Good. Not because they're unimportant. They are shorter books relative to the, the major prophets, obviously. Um, so they're shorter books, which... I like because that means that they're easier to read in one sitting, right? You know me, you know, like that. I think that that's really important. Uh, you can even do that with the major prophets. I've done it. Isaiah, Jeremiah, it's intimidating. Those take hours, but every one of these books can be read in a very relatively short period of time. Some of them in a matter of minutes, and you could sit down and you could read it from the beginning to the end. And some of them are a little intimidating, I'll admit. You know, they are poetic and prophetic. Uh, a lot of them are apocalyptic. They use metaphors and uh, language about monsters and beasts, and they use poetic languages, and it's not always literal. Um, I, that's why sometimes I suggest that you read, especially the prophets, and maybe a paraphrase translation. My favorite is the New Living Translation. I like that one. Um, it's not my primary Bible, but when I'm reading some, something like this sometimes, I'll pull out a paraphrase like that, um, and it, it's helpful to say, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, that's probably uh, what that person, what that, that, that phrase means or that idea means. So, so do that. Uh, but, but again, I encourage you, every time we have one of these lessons on a Wednesday night, maybe go home. Uh, maybe you won't be able to do it tonight, but maybe tomorrow morning. I promise you, you could read Hosea in the time that you sit down and have breakfast or coffee or whatever, or maybe over your lunch hour. Sit down and read Hosea from the beginning to the end. Because if we know anything about the minor prophets, we know little bits and pieces, you know? Like Hosea, we know about his marriage, maybe. Maybe you know about his marriage to Gomer. Gomer. Good, okay, good, good. So, so some of us know some of the minor prophets, right? But, but if we know anything about Hosea, it's usually limited to the first three chapters of the book, and the rest of the book is kind of fuzzy in our minds. So sit down, and I'd encourage you to, just to read through the whole, the whole book. One of the things that I love about studying the minor prophets is that they remind me that Christianity is not just my religion. It is my, my nationality. It is my politics. Christianity is our life. It really very much is our nationality. Following Jesus should be our politics. My politics are really simple. I believe Jesus is king and I'm a citizen of his kingdom. And it is a kingdom that has no borders. It's a kingdom that is worldwide, that speaks countless languages, is made up of countless nationalities and tribes and ethnicities. Uh, just tonight, I hope I don't embarrass my new friend Paul, but I, I met my, my friend Paul, and he is from, he came all the way from Kenya tonight. You thought you drove a long way. Uh, but he, no, he didn't come all the way from Kenya tonight, but, uh, but he is visiting the states from Kenya. And we're citizens of the same kingdom. We, we have the same politics. We have the same king, right? And that's what these books remind me of. I am a part of this story. Jesus has made you and I a part of this story. 
This is our history. This is our kingdom. These are our people. This is our life. And it's more than just a religion. It's more than just sin management. It's more than just where am I going when I die. This is everything. This is who we are. And this is the story. This is the family tree into which Jesus grafts us. And, and this is the story through which the apostles were interpreting and explaining who Jesus is and what Jesus is up to and what Jesus has done. It's through the lens of these prophets. When the, when the apostles would say, Jesus did this to fulfill scripture, or when Jesus did that, it was because the scriptures had said, we have to know what in the world were they talking about when they said that. What story were the prophets telling? Because the apostles were saying Jesus is the fulfillment to everything Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Jonah and Micah and Nahum. All of these prophets, the story that they were telling, this Jesus is the culmination of this story and now you are a part of this story and this is your kingdom. These are your people. This is your nationality. This is your ethnicity. Who are you? I am an Israelite by faith in Jesus. That's the gospel story. So we're going to talk maybe just briefly, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on introduction because I don't want you to think that this is going to be a history class or that we're going to spend a lot of time uh, in dates and numbers and those kind of things. But I think it is important to recognize you know, what sort of the background is a little bit to the prophets. Um, about 930 years before Jesus... So 930 BC, um, the, the kingdom of Israel split into a northern kingdom and to a southern kingdom, right? And so the northern kingdom was Israel and the southern kingdom was Judah, right? And so God's people, the 12 tribes, were split into two different kingdoms. They had separate kings. They had separate governments. Um, they, they united every now and then to do something cooperatively, but for the most part, they were, sometimes they were at war with each other. Sometimes they were at war with the people around them. But they were split into two kingdoms. And then about 200 years after that split occurred, um, about 740 to about 722, um, then the Assyrian Empire, that's the next slide, um, pretty much was taking over the world and destroyed Israel, the northern kingdom. God spared the southern kingdom of Judah. You can kind of see it there in the green uh, from the Assyrian Empire. Soon it would fall to the Babylonians uh, not too long after that. But I think sometimes it's even helpful for us to understand that even in Jesus' day, this was sort of ancient history. Even for Jesus and for his contemporaries, these things like the split between the, the two kingdoms, that happened nearly a thousand years before Jesus was born. We're talking about ancient history, even from Jesus' perspective. And, and then even the Assyrian captivity from Jesus' perspective was something that happened 700 years before Jesus, right? But the fallout and what happened in the captivity and the destruction from Assyria and then later from Babylon and all of God's people being deported and exiled. Not all of them were deported or exiled. Some of them stayed in the land. But even after they came back from all of those things, for the most part, 
The, the Jewish people, the Israelite descendants, the descendants of Abraham remained dispersed throughout the world. And, and even though some of them came back to their, their heritage, their land of heritage, they still very much remained a people who were exiled. This dark cloud sort of sat over their heads waiting for a savior, waiting for a deliverer, waiting for someone to take away and to wash away their iniquities. So all of this story uh, of Hosea and what Hosea is saying and how Hosea is living and the message that he's giving to them from God, it all takes place uh, over 700 years before Jesus. Um, And so we might break down the book of Hosea this way, the first three chapters, Hosea's marriage, and the, fir- and the next uh, chapters, chapters 4 through 14, Hosea's message. But in all of it, both in his marriage and in his message, Hosea is sharing with God's people, this is how God feels about the way you're living. And I just was thinking about that this afternoon. This is the way God feels. Isn't that just kind of an interesting thought? Our God is an emotional God. And and Hosea isn't giving them a math equation. One plus one equals two. Sometimes we treat God like like it's math. God compares himself to Israel's husband, to Israel's father to someone who, who loves them. Um, yeah, we could, here, here's some of the metaphors that, that Hosea gives so that they understand this is how God feels. One is an, that Israel is like an unfaithful wife or like a stubborn heifer or like a silly dove that keeps flying back and forth between Egypt and Assyria, like a worthless half-baked cake like a wild donkey looking for a mate. And so God tells Hosea to marry Gomer. And why does he tell Hosea to marry Gomer? Because Gomer is a a prostitute, right? A whore. Marry a wife of whoredom so that Israel knows this is how I feel about the way you're treating me. I mean, imagine, again, God took these people out of Egypt. This is their story. God rescued them out of Egypt. God brought them into the land. God gave them the promised land. It was like and supposed to be like a new Eden had brought them back from captivity and exile and slavery, brought them into the promised land and said, it's yours and you and I, we're going to live here together and have this blessed relationship and covenant But instead of being faithful to that covenant, God says to them, you're being a prostitute. And and I think we need to understand what he means by that. One is the idolatry, right? Because they worshiped idols. But also because they perverted justice. And they disregarded the law. And they sought protection from other nations. I think think that's important for us to kind of consider. Because God was angry with them, not just for like their religious practices, not just because you're like physically bowing down to an idol, 
But because you keep going to Assyria and to Egypt and these big, mighty empires with big armies and strong, powerful nations, and you think they're going to make you wealthy and you think they're going to protect you and provide for you. God says, I want you to know what that feels like. Men of Israel, imagine if your wife went and she was finding protection and being provided for by another man. Right? Instead of coming to you for love, for shelter, for protection, for providing, for food, for clothing, your wife is going to every other guy in town. And so Hosea lives out a parable of being married to a woman like that so that Israel knows this is how you're treating me. Gomer has three children. The first one is named Jezreel to indicate God's judgment. The second one is named No Mercy to indicate God will no longer have mercy on Israel. The third one is named Not My People to indicate God is saying to them, you're not my people. God wants them to know both in Hosea's marriage and in Hosea's message This is how I feel about the way you're living. You're worshiping idols, you're perverting justice, and you're looking to other kings and kingdoms for providing for food and shelter and protection. And why why is that? It's obvious, isn't it? Why that's an affront to God? Because they were supposed to look to God to provide for them, God to protect them, God to put food on their table, God to clothe them. But they didn't. They were looking to everyone else. And and if we're honest, it's really easy to do the exact same thing, isn't it? And God says, you are not being faithful to me. You are acting like a harlot, and I'm done In fact, you could say that God often gives people exactly what they ask for. Doesn't he? And he says, so often, his punishment for Israel or later for Judah, in in them saying, no, 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 we want to live like everyone else. (laughs) You go all the way back to when they asked for a king, right? We want a king like everybody else has a king. And God is saying to them, no, you have a king unlike anyone else has a king. I'm your king. The creator of the universe is your king. I have a special covenant with you. It's like you're my wife. That's how close we are. It's like we're married. And yet you want a king so that you can be like everyone else? Fine. You want to be like everyone else? See what that feels like for a little bit. See what it feels like for them to be your protector, them to be your provider. See what that feels like. See how that goes for you, right? And that's exactly what happens here with Israel. You want want the kingdoms of the world to be your provider and your protector? See what that feels like. See how they treat you. You make a covenant with them and you see how good they are to you. You see how good those kings are to you. And, And this is exactly the sort of Uh, destruction that comes about. So all throughout Hosea, and so many of the prophets are this way, 
God is warning them about their well-deserved punishment. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 11 through 12 says, The people of Israel will be crushed and broken by my judgment because they are determined to worship idols. I'll destroy Israel as a moth consumes wool. I'll make Judah as weak as rotten wood. The hearts of the people are fickle. This is, oh, sorry, chapter 10 and verse 2. Hearts of the people are fickle. They're guilty and must be punished. So, so much of the book is... You have been so unfaithful and I am so brokenhearted and disappointed and it's over between us. It's done. But then, but then almost when you don't expect it, then God, like almost mid-sentence sometimes, says, oh, but I can't. I can't. How can I do that? How can I just... How can I just be done with you? I can't be done with you. I've, I, I love you and I have, I have the work that I'm going to do in you and I'm not going to throw you away and I will have mercy on you and you will be my people and I still have a plan with you and I'm still committed to that and I will bring you back. And again, Hosea's marriage to Gomer bears that out, doesn't it? And, and apparently Hosea had sent Gomer away or for whatever reason she was gone just like Israel would eventually be gone. And Hosea buys her back, redeems her. And God is saying, I will, I will redeem my people Israel. I will redeem them. And it's like we talked about a week or so ago. That's what redemption, the idea of redemption in Scripture is about bringing home, about bringing someone home. Somebody who has fallen on hard times or made really bad decisions and has been exiled from their homeland To redeem them is to make payment so that they can come back home, so that their relationship and their standing and their honor and their name and their land is returned to them. And just like Hosea redeems Gomer, God says, I will redeem my people Israel. So all of these prophets, there's this message of judgment. This is what happens when you are unfaithful to God. This is how God feels, and this is what God will do, and this is what it's going to look like, and many of you are going to die. We need to understand that this is, this is a cycle of time that's going to take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Generations of Israelites will be exiled and banished, and many will die in slavery and in pain, not because God is mean, but because they've been a a prostitute to the God who made a covenant with them and they've been unfaithful to him and so they got exactly what they asked for. Now, my favorite metaphor in the book of Hosea isn't even the marriage one but is the fact that God says that Israel is like his son. Look at Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, whether or not you've read this in Hosea, you've heard this phrase before, haven't you? Out of Egypt, I called my son. And it's found in Matthew chapter 2. But who's it talking about in Matthew chapter 2? Jesus. And Matthew says, Matthew says that Jesus went to Egypt. You remember when he was a baby and they, the family went to Egypt and then they, they came back to the land of Israel and Matthew ties this together with Hosea and says, this happened to fulfill what the prophet wrote. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, now some people look at that and say, well, Matthew just like totally took that out of context. 
Because Hosea wasn't talking about the Messiah. Hosea wasn't making a prediction about the Messiah, was he? What's he saying? When Israel was a child, I loved him. Now, the him refers to who? Israel, all the people, right? And when did God call them out of Egypt? The Exodus, right? He brought all of them. And so God is saying, as a metaphor, he's saying, it's like when I brought my, my, my people out of Egypt and I delivered them and I brought them into the promised land, they were collectively my son, So what is it that Matthew is really saying? He's not pulling a verse out of context. He's not twisting the scriptures. He's making a profound statement about the identity of Jesus, that Jesus is Israel. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. The whole promise around Israel is that the seed of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, would be a blessing to the nations. Now, the people of Israel had always read that, and understandably so, as us, right? The offspring of Abraham is all of us, all of us Jews, all of us Israelites, all of us descendants, offspring of Abraham. But Paul would say in Galatians 3, he's like, no, 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 no. There's only one real offspring of Abraham, one faithful Israel, one faithful seed of Abraham, and that is Jesus, the Messiah. He is the faithful Israel. He is the one by whom all of the promises would come true. And that's what I think Matthew is saying. Matthew is saying that Jesus is Israel. Yes, Hosea is talking about Israel, but so is Matthew. Matthew is saying Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Jesus is Israel. So God saying, this is how I feel about Israel. This is how I feel about the descendants of Abraham. Like they're my child. And I brought them out of Egypt. I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept kept sacrificing to the balls and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I mean, it's, it's like God is saying, like, I, I, I brought them out. I called them. I, I taught this little baby boy how to walk, and I was holding him. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them took care of them, I blessed them, I taught them how to walk. The more I called to them, the more I took care of them, and the more I said, do do this, walk this way, do do these kinds of things, this is how you go, come on, come on, you can do it, you can do it. The more I did that, the more they went away, verse two. Verse five, "They, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. Again, This is what you want, this is what you get. You want kingdoms like Assyria and Egypt to be your king? You want their protection and their providing? Then this is exactly what you'll get. Because they have refused to return to me, 
The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are, listen to this, bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. They are bent on turning away from me. Every time I say, just, I just want what's best for you. And again, anybody who's, even if you're not a parent, you've, you, you've had a parent or you've seen parenting, you, you understand this metaphor, don't you? Not only what God is saying in a very literal way, they're disobedient, but how it feels to have a wayward child who the more you say, I just want what's best for you, and the son to say, I don't care. I don't want to listen to you. I don't want what you have to offer. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't want you around. I don't want you telling me what to do. I don't want you guiding my steps. I want to do things my way. And that's exactly the way, not only the way Israel has been living, but the way God feels about it because he loves them more than we can possibly imagine. And, and he loves the mission for which he has chosen them to bless the world. He loves them and he loves the plan that he has for them and with them. His plan that God is relentlessly committed to is I will use Israel to bless the world. I will use the seed of Abraham to reconcile the world to myself. I will use the offspring of Abraham to bring my kingdom. I will make it so through Abraham's offspring, right? God, can you just feel the frustration? But then he says, verse eight, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? And that's a metaphor for talking about, or a way of talking about Israel, the northern kingdom. And how can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? Or how can I treat you like Zeboim, two of the cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah? How, how, can, I, how can I let that happen to you? My heart recoils, listen to that, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Do you see the tension in the text? That God is saying, on the one hand, ah, what you've done is horrible and despicable, and my name has no business being attached to it, and you have been so disobedient and unfaithful, and it breaks my heart. And so, yes, I'm going to punish you, but at the same time, how can I wipe you out? Because I I love you and I care about you and my heart is warm with compassion and tenderness. Verse nine, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim for I am God and not a man, the holy one in your midst and I will not come in wrath. So God's holy compassion restrains his holy anger, right? God is angry, but God is also compassionate. And and that's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? That in the cross, God both punishes sin for what it is and exposes it for what it is, but also has mercy and forgiveness on the sinner. He says, verse 10, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion 
And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. Come back home. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So again, not just in Hosea, but in all of these minor prophets, you have this judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And it's going to be painful. And it's well-deserved. But God's not done with you yet. God's not done with our people yet. God still has a plan, and he is relentlessly committed to blessing the world through the offspring of Abraham. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Now, I mean, that's going to be eventually not even true, right? And so the question is, who is faithful? Who is faithful? Judah was faithful for a while. Israel, no longer Israel is going to be destroyed. Uh, But eventually Judah will be destroyed. The Babylonians will come in and wipe them out. So who is is faithful? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful to the Holy One. God, in spite of Israel's lack of faithfulness, This is Romans chapter three. In spite of their lack of faithfulness, covenant, commitment, faithfulness to their agreement with God, in spite of the fact that as a whole, many of them weren't faithful to the covenant, God never broke covenant with them. And he was committed to blessing them and blessing the world through the offspring of Abraham. He was committed to blessing the world through his son, Israel. And it turns out, who is his son? Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, the faithful one. And Jesus is faithful. But again, kind of like what we talked about on Sunday morning, not only does Jesus show us this is what, this is what every Israelite should have been, not only is Jesus the representative Israelite who fulfills the covenant with God, but also Jesus is the one through whom we get the opportunity to be faithful Israel. We get the opportunity to be in the Messiah. And this new Israel is built on the foundation that is Jesus. God builds this new kingdom on the cornerstone that is Jesus. And we get to be faithful Israel so that all of the covenant promises are now ours. This becomes our family story. That's why Paul, all through Romans, Galatians, he he goes over this over and over again, doesn't he? He says, not everybody who is ethnically Jewish is actually part of Israel. And many are. Paul himself was ethnically an Israelite and an Israelite by faith in Jesus. But then many Gentiles like us, even though we're not ethnically descendants of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham has made us a part of the faithful Israel. But here's the thing. We need to read this story and say, but if this is our story and we're grafted into this family, is it possible that we might repeat the same mistakes 
that they made in Hosea's day? If individuals could be unfaithful to the covenant in Hosea's day, might you and I as individuals, oh, God is going to save his people, those who are faithful to Jesus, but what about you and I individually? Or even you and I as, as this group? Might it be possible that we fall into the same traps and repeat the same mistakes that the people of Hosea's day did? So let's look at Hosea chapter 12 as we wrap up in verse 1. And this is, again, how he describes the people of his day. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. He, several times in the book, makes these wind metaphors. One time it's like they're sowing to the wind and they're reaping the tornado, the whirlwind, right? They're like sowing, one, one paraphrase says, they're sowing wind seeds. <laughs> and what are you doing sowing the wind, right? It's nothing, but you're going to reap a, a whirlwind. And here they feed on the wind. One commentator said it's kind of like the word feed is like shepherding. It's like you're trying to shepherd, corral the wind and pursue the east wind all day long. They multiply, listen, here's very literally what they're doing. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and they bring oil to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. And, and then, again, he's, he's kind of playing on Jacob. He's saying, y'all are, are Jacob's descendants. And you remember Jacob, right? Jacob was twin brothers with Esau, right? And so he reminds them, verse 3, in the womb, Jacob took his brother by the heel. And that kind of became... His, his M.O., right? The way that Jacob lived his life was kind of grabbing people by the heel, right? He was a cheat and he was a deceiver and he was always tripping people up. And in his manhood, he even strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. You remember, I, I won't let you go until you bless me. He met God at Bethel and there God spoke with with us because God made a promise to us. We've, we've been a lot like Jacob, our forefather, in that we've been grabbing people by the heel and wrestling with people and with God. We've been fighting against God, but God spoke with Jacob and he spoke with us in Jacob. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, verse six, so you, by the help of your God, return. Repent. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. I don't know that we could end with any better words than that. That's what Hosea is telling the people of his day. God has made a commitment to us and he will fulfill that commitment. And if you want to be part of it, and you want to see it, and you want to experience it, and you want to be blessed in it and blessed by it, then this is what you'll do. Come back to God. With his help, hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for him as opposed to what? What, what, it, what does it mean to wait for God? Be still and know that I am God. Wait 
continually upon the Lord. What does it mean to wait for God? It means trust him. We just spent a whole quarter talking about the meek will inherit the earth, right? Meekness, being content with the present in light of the future, bearing with what's going on because you trust him. But it's so much easier, isn't it? In the moment when you're suffering and you're hurting and you think, yeah, but that guy over there can fix all my problems. Don't you know that that king, oh, that king, he says he can protect me and that king says he can provide for me. So uh, I don't know, I could sit around and wait for God or I could have this guy come and fix all my problems. And Hosea says, return to the Lord with his help Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. He will protect you. He will provide for you. He will keep his promises. It's up to us. If we're going to be the 21st century covenant people of God who are living out and living in the promises that God made to the descendant of of Abraham, who is Jesus, by whom we've become the new covenant people, the faithful Israel, then we have to be the faithful Israel. We have to be God's faithful people. Wait for him and trust him and hold fast to love and justice. That's why this kingdom of ours Our laws in this kingdom can be summed up in two commandments. That's what Jesus said. They can be summed up with love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, Lord, we thank you for this message, this hard, hard message that Hosea gave to Israel in his day. And Father, as those who are trying to be and who have been gifted the privilege of citizenship in your kingdom, we pray, Father, that you will help us to be faithful, to walk as Jesus has taught us to walk, to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh, with your your help, Father, to hold fast to love and justice and to wait continually for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.